Hello and welcome to the Lawdown, our regular podcast in which we discuss some of the latest news stories making the headlines and we unpack the interesting employment, partnership and discrimination law issues behind them. So I am Pooja Dasgupta, I am a Senior Associate at CM Murray and I'm joined today by Beth Hale and Emma Bartlett who are partners at the firm. And today we've picked three different stories to discuss. The first one being uh, the Ritz job applicant who was informed of the Afro hair ban policy, the grooming policy by the Ritz. Um, the secondly, we're going to discuss the toxic workplace culture issues that have arisen for places recently, such as the CBI and the Met Police. And then finally, we're also going to discuss um, a recent story that, that we picked up where um, Boots angered customers uh, with their sign for less abled parking. So um, I will kick off with the first story, the, the story about the Ritz job applicant who was informed of, of their Afro hair ban. So this um, applicant, Jarrell Jules, was told that his hair was against the employee grooming policy of the Ritz. And um, Mr. Jules had made us the final round of interviews for position as a dining reservation supervisor at the Ritz when he was sent this policy. Um, and the policy, interestingly, only dated 2021 um, and not, uh, not um, longer ago. Um, it, it said that unusual hairstyles, quote unquote, um, such as spiky hair, Afro style, were not allowed. Um, and of course, um, Mr. Jules was understandably entirely shocked and disappointed that his hairstyle was not deemed suitable in accordance with that policy. And the Ritz uh, subsequently issued a statement saying that they offered, um, a, again, quote unquote, unreserved apology for this error. But um, according to Mr. Jules, he found the apology to be disingenuous and lackluster. So Mr. Jules, um, he he works in corporate housing and he said that this was the first time actually that he'd been told that he couldn't have Afro hair for a job. And he actually ended up declining the final interview on the basis of this grooming policy, which he considered to be an example of corporate ignorance. Um, and he just didn't feel comfortable going to the interview. In terms of you know wider commentary, obviously this is you know pretty shocking to to most most of us reading this story that um, you know these types of grooming policies are um, still kicking around in 2023, um, and you know especially given that it's been updated so recently in June 2021, um, and it seems you know slightly unusual that the Ritz that Ritz hadn't kind of taken into account the the broader implications of this, and looking at the the concept of hair discrimination more closely, um, I thought it was quite interesting to reflect on where, where we are in the world um, in respect of hair discrimination um, and what recourse, what protection there might actually be for um, employees, job applicants who find themselves in this type of situation um, and if they want to, you know, take steps to protect themselves against that type of behaviour. So in the US, by way of contrast, um, there there's been a couple of um, cases and I think whilst the Supreme Court refused to hear the case of Chastity Jones which, which many people will be aware of who um, Chastity Jones was a woman whose job offer was rescinded when she declined the invitation to cut off her dreadlocks which um, HR feared had a propensity to be messy in, in contrast to that some states have taken a proactive approach and 
in California and in New York, less favorable treatment of people based on hair or hairstyle is now considered to be a form of race discrimination under the Crown Act. Um, but my understanding is that a number of states still haven't adopted the, the Crown Act and there is further work to be done on that front. Um, and then obviously the position here in the UK, we obviously have section nine of the Equality Act, which defines race as including color, nationality and ethnic or national origins. Um, so, you know, as part of that, it could you could viably see a claim be put together in respect of hair discrimination. There might be other aspects of um, the factual matrix in, that could put together a, a claim of, of race discrimination. And there have been a number of interesting cases over the years, um, including the case of um, Mandler and Lee, which was a, a really, it's quite, it was a case that was heard a long time ago in 1982, well before um, you know, the Equality Act came into place. And in that case, um, a Sikh boy was refused a place at an independent school because he wore a turban. Um, and that was contrary, contrary to the uniform policy. Um, and that, that individual was um, considered to be the victim of uh, direct race discrimination. Um, but then in another case of um, Crown Suppliers and Dawkins, Rastafarianism was not held uh, to be a defined ethnic grouping um, as was the case in, in Mandarin and Lee for um, this, this Sikh boy, um, which meant that in this Crown Suppliers case, um, the, a Rastafarian re was refused a job because his dreadlocks couldn't succeed in his claim of direct race discrimination. But I think more commonly, the claim that we, we might see is a claim of indirect um, race discrimination, where, for example, there is a provision criteria or practice of a uniform or dress code policy, which places those who share certain protective characteristics um, at a particular disadvantage compared to those who don't have that characteristic. And um, there have been a number of, there have been a spate of recent kind of stories and cases in relation to um, school children who have found themselves dealing with that type of policy. Um, there was the well-publicized um, story about Ruby Williams um, who, who went in seeking to comply with her school uniform policy which said that Afro-style hair, including buns, should be a reasonable size and length, um, meant that she spent at least 30 minutes each morning trying to style her hair into something which the school deemed to be reasonable. Um, and that ends up, you know, with all sorts of implications for her, um, including her hairline receding as she had to pull her hair back, um, which is obviously, you know, pretty, pretty shocking in itself. And her complaint for indirect race discrimination um, which was supported by the EHRC actually was settled on the basis of no admission of liability for 8,500 pounds. And as far as I'm aware, she never got an apology, which obviously is, is often the case in those types of situations, but it's still, you know, nonetheless, you know, disappointing. And, you know, taking the cases to one side, it's just, I just thought it was interesting to kind of reflect on what's out there at the moment, what's been happening. But, you know, practically speaking, leaving aside the legal risks, Surely, it seems to me that employers should always be thinking about what the actual requirements are of the job and what the actual output is that's required, rather than um, potentially promoting discriminatory practices um, by forcing staff to adhere to a certain type of look, for example, and to not be messy and to be to look at a certain type of way. And I think there's definitely a bit of a movement at the moment, you know, with campaigns like the one that Dove has with LinkedIn at the moment, where um, I know that I've seen lots of posts of, of people getting involved. Um, I think the campaign is talking about wearing your hair your way. 
Um, and that specifically um, is with a view to promoting the Crown Act in the US, but I guess it has more, you know, more wider implications. But um, yeah, that was that was kind of my take on it. So there are things that are, are happening, but obviously then seeing articles like this story about the Ritz um, job applicant kind of makes you think that maybe there is a lot of progress still to be made elsewhere. Pooja, that is so interesting. and. Um, like you said, it's. Uh, I know that the Ritz had responded to that, saying that it was um uh, they'd given him the wrong job description, but nevertheless, it was one that was dated twenty twenty one, so only a couple of years old. But I remember a few years ago we were talking about job descriptions, and I remember redrafting a lot of job descriptions, which uh, employers critically were looking at from a gender perspective, where they had created job descriptions, for example, that were gender specific. So it was the very um, well publicised case of a, a receptionist being required to wear heels and saying, I'm not doing it, and then losing a job um, as a result. So as you say, really interesting that this is still an issue that's, you know, the whole issue of job descriptions is still potentially going to um, fall foul of our Equality Act. And I really, uh, I just had one other comment on this, and that was I really like the acronym that the Crown Act stands for in the US it's for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair act that's what the crown act stands for so I, I love the way they, I love the way they do that in America they all their acts have have clever acronyms don't they it's uh, it's quite yeah it's good um I was also I mean I totally agree with you I think it's extraordinary that this is a story from 2023 um I think uh, it reminds me of the time that my sister she won't thank me for mentioning this on a podcast, but anyway, um, my sister was then home from school with a letter saying that she would get on better socially if she brought a hairbrush to school with her. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, it does, it feels very, very much like a sort of throwback, doesn't it? And, and the idea that, that a policy like that at an organisation like the Ritz has gone through presumably several layers of people looking at it and no one has said, hang on a second, this is not OK, I, I think is, um, is really, really surprising. And, you know, they, they can't now be surprised, really, by the negative publicity that they've received as a result. Yeah, I mean, no doubt they will be taking steps to update their policy ASAP if they haven't already. Yeah, I also think a grooming is the, the fact that it's called a grooming policy is a very strange name, but that's maybe perhaps a separate discussion. Agreed. And uh, yeah, I guess the final thing that I was going to mention as well is that um, we talked about in the halo code. Um, that's also um, around now, um, which is the UK's first black hair code. And I know that some companies have already started adopting that code, um, which seeks to protect employees who come to work with natural hair and protective hairstyles associated with their racial, ethnic and cultural identities. So, again, you know, if employers are thinking about how they can take more serious steps to try and, um, you know, eradicate, stamp, stamp out this type of discrimination, then I guess that might be something they might consider. Definitely. I think it's really nice. It's really they've got a really good website and it's a really good thing to have a look at, I think, if you're interested in this as a as an issue. And I think, yeah, it, it comes as you rightly identified, it comes right through from sort of school level, doesn't it? That there are these kinds of assumptions being made and and inappropriate action being taken. And and so people sort of yeah, get travels with them throughout their life. And I think that's you know, it, it, it's it's a massive throwback, isn't it? And it shouldn't be happening anymore. It's very disappointing that it is. Agreed. Okay, so I think that takes us on to our second story, um, which uh, is with Emma to introduce. So that's about the toxic, toxic workplace cultures that have um, been brought to light in the CBI and Met and similar. Thank you, PJ. So um, 
it's pretty difficult to miss this week how the um, Director General of the CBI has been uh, has left his job um, in the face of um, gross misconduct allegations, um, which have subsequently we don't actually know what the allegations are. The news reports that he's mentioned that he was he joined in late 2020 and he took steps to try and get to know people in the business and some of those steps have been subsequently misinterpreted as making colleagues feel uncomfortable for which he's apologized. Um, the story uh, refers however to a broader investigation which became extended leading up to his um, exit from the CBI of other misconduct within the business um, which uh, one of the allegations which isn't um, levied at the director general but one of the allegations was the um a, a very serious allegation of rape and this type this type of behavior other allegations of sexual misconduct being made against women um as well and so it's it's given rise to an assertion that within the cbi there is a toxic culture and workplace behavior and um this is uh, not a new story in terms of big employers or big business, uh, big hitters in the in the last sort of six to 12 months, where we've heard uh, similar stories come out with regards to the Met. Um, we've seen it, and I'm sure we've mentioned it on this podcast before, in relation to firefighters as well, um, where there is a small percentage of the um, working population within these um, employers that are being blamed for creating a toxic culture, where um, there is a level of discrimination and bullying and harassment, which um, it isn't being or hasn't been dealt with until the point where it, it requires an independent investigation, which has happened in each of these um, three employers that I've just mentioned. Um, and it's it's interesting, isn't it, as to whether or not can um, how these scandals, how do employers recover from this type of scandal and assertion of a toxic workplace culture because there will always be people who want to be firefighters or who will want to work for the CBI and the fact that it's um, labelled a, a toxic culture may not put them off but you can see in relation to the CBI that certain um, uh, businesses that have been back in the CBI have caused their behaviour, their um, relationship with the CBI until um, further information about how deep the cultural issues um, have gone. And so this can really affect business, I think is what I'm trying to say. So how do employers bounce back from this? And I think one of the issues um, that I've been reading about is how uh, businesses measure performance. So most employers will have um, this, you know, their own policy on what they want their workplace to be, what the culture should be, how we should treat each other, is there respect? Do people feel able to speak up um, within the business um, without fear of retaliation? And it's when these things start to fall over that it can give rise to this, um, this situation. And so it's, uh, it's a question of whether leaders have that on their agenda um, to always be reminding people of, you know, this is what we are, this is who we are about at the end of the day and linking um, the values of the business to how that leader's performance is measured. So um, if people are rewarded primarily on um, the results, the profits of the business, then surely that's what the leaders of the business are gonna focus on 
and that can give rise to a, a situation where um, grumblings of toxic workplace behaviour are ignored in favour of prior, our prior, number one priority is profit um, and generating growth and business. Whereas if on the leader's agenda, you have um, some reward for ensuring that the values of the business are um, measured and um, valued, then maybe it could give rise to a different result. So um, in terms of how businesses move forward, and obviously in two minutes, I can't answer that at all. But if I was to give a couple of thoughts on it, I think businesses need to undertake those cultural reviews, look at the recommendations, look at the findings, and then act upon them. Um, quite often, for example, with employee engagement surveys, we've seen it in big businesses where you do the employee engagement surveys, you get the results, and then nothing actually happens. And then when you come to the next employee engagement survey, people are saying, well, we talked about this, and the problem's still here, and nobody's done anything about it. So it's, it's really talking on, if you're serious about, as an, as an employer, about trying to have a culture that you're proud of um, and uh, it matches your workplace values, then it's a question of listening, even if it's just 1% of the population that are saying there's a, there's a, a really dark problem over here, then you have to listen to it because that, can, that 1% um, that has upset a small proportion of the population is going to result in such a hugely damaging um, reputational um, issue that we've just seen happen with the CBI. It's impacted their reputation and it's impacted the reputation of their director general. So it's it's a question of, I think anyway, of employers listening to that percentage of the workforce um, and making sure they act on it. Yeah, I think I think well, I agree with all of that, Emma. I think it's um it's really important, isn't it, to avoid taking knee-jerk reactions to um, findings that are made against kind of individual key protagonists in these types of situations and actually looking a bit deeper because obviously that press reaction will be huge at the time. But then afterwards, you need to think about all the things that you've just mentioned um, in terms of how to actually eradicate that toxic workplace culture and improve and address internally you know where are the flaws in your where are the flaws in the processes that have allowed this misconduct to actually happen and um you know why is it all coming to the fore now why didn't it come to the fore you know at the time at which it was raised and you know rather than everything all at once because one person's spoken up and then everyone else feels empowered to why didn't those people feel empowered to do so before um you know at the time that it happened potentially so um yeah and as you say about the kind of tying it into performance I think sometimes certain organizations certain companies need more of a business case put to them as to how to as to the reason why they need to shake up the culture even though to most people it might have seemed common sense in terms of the moral case of doing that but um if the leaders who will ultimately need to be kind of leading from the top if their performance and their the way in which they're remunerated etc if that is all tied in with good behavior and you know aligning closely with the values of the company then presumably that will be an effective way moving forward yeah, and there there was one suggestion I think in the CBI investigation that somebody had um, raised their complaint of sexual misconduct, and um, the individual had been recommended um, to just take some counselling about it rather than the business properly taking 
the, the allegation seriously, which um, is realistically the only way you can take such an allegation. Yeah, and carry out a full investigation. I think people need to know that if they do make a complaint, that, that it will be investigated and, and, and then dealt with appropriately. So I think that and that's really important, I think, in terms of sort of building trust and building that sort of trusting culture. That was part of the issue in the Met, wasn't it? And in the five parts of um, the report as well, that people didn't feel like they'd be trusted if they did raise the complaint. So, yeah, I think trust and transparency and open, honest conversations are so integral to this. Absolutely. Okay, and then our final story, Emma. Yeah. Um, so this was this was something which has instantly been resolved um, by the uh, business in question, but for me raised um, the big question of disability etiquette and this was a, a language around um, diversity and inclusion so um, a, a couple of days ago it hit the headlines that Boots the pharmacy had in one or more of their locations um, put up parking signs for um, their wheelchair users and um, rather than using the word disabled parking or just even a symbol to indicate what the parking space was reserved for the sign said less abled um, parking, um, which immediately um, gave rise to criticism and uh, some of their customers saying, why have you done this? Disability is not a dirty word. And um, it just reminded me that there are so many sensitivities around how one might refer to um, different people. We're all different at the end of the day. But how you refer to somebody by reference to a particular condition um, can be very inflammatory. And um, I have to say, referring to a disabled person as somebody who is less abled, I'm sure the intention behind it was to um, come away from the word disability for whatever reason, but may have been a little bit short-sighted in, in uh, choosing that as a replacement word. And it's it's the sort of thing that we've seen in our discussions about neurodiversity and neurodivergence that whilst that may not always but in some circumstances um, be a statutory disability depending on how uh, the neurodiversity impacts the individual a staff being a statutory disability doesn't mean that somebody is disabled that doesn't mean certainly that somebody who is neurodiverse would ever want to be labeled as disabled so from my perspective, it just raises the conversation again about um, etiquette and thinking about how we all refer to other people um, in that respect. And as I say, I'm sure the intention was not to cause offence, but perhaps um, uh, some sort of disability um, advisor might be able to give a different view on that. Thanks, Emma. Yeah, I think um, it's it's kind of fought with... Um with issues here really isn't it about terminology around around disability and you know this potential stigma sometimes associated with the word disability and whether it's you know some people might feel I think comfortable for their to be considered disabled under the legislation for the kind of Equality Act purposes it, you know as need be if they, if they want to be if they need protection under the Equality Act but then otherwise they consider themselves in all other respects kind of fully able so I don't I think it's probably just an error on Boots' part, really, isn't it? And it's something that, with a bit more thought, they they probably could have avoided this type of um, kind of public scrutiny in this way. So, just always taking time to to think about the terminology that you use. I think. 
And if in doubt, ask. If in doubt, double check with someone. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, sometimes these are the sort of questions that we get asked about and how can um, how can an employer, say if we bring it back to the employment situation, but how can an employer um, guard against making these types of um, PR errors um, or uh, inadvertently um, losing their um, diversity and inclusion objectives? And from a, an employment perspective, we would always sort of try to say anytime there's a decision being made, whether it's a decision being made by management or supervisors, or indeed your um, business development and marketing, is to make sure that there has been some diversity training across the board, and even better, to have a diversity champion nominated on any of those decision-making bodies who can step back and take a look at this and say, hold on a second, that photo is six white men. Is that representative of our business or not? Maybe there's a better way that we could use this. Or in this case, looking at that sign and saying, hold on a second, I think that could reasonably cause offence. Um, and it's it's just having that nominated diversity champion there who could catch it, perhaps. Well, thank you very much, Emma and Beth, for um, sharing your insights in, in this episode of The Lawdown. And we hope um, you who have kind of listened to it have enjoyed the episode. Do get in touch with us by um, emailing info at cm-murray.com if you have any questions about any of the topics that we've discussed um, or the issues arising. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thank you.